You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, DYP or Deepening Your Practice. It is... December 17th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, it's the week before the week of the holidays, uh, in, in at least in uh, where I am. Um, so I thought I'd give you a choice. We continue, continue to talk about organizing your uh, practice or we can talk about the joy of going home for the holidays and spending time with family. <laughs> Which would you rather? Let's talk about the holidays. <laughs> okay. Um, anyone else want to pipe in? One boat is going to carry it. <laughs> is anyone actually going home for the holidays, though? Because it's COVID time, right? Yeah. No? I'm good with the holidays. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, maybe you have a, 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 a family of choice rather than a family of origin you can be with or um, how big is your COVID pod here um, with rapid testing you know now you can you can test in the morning and go home in the afternoon <clears throat> and hopefully everybody will be safe yesterday in Los Angeles uh or two days ago in Los Angeles, there was a, 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 a little thing in the paper where you could type in your, your zip code and it would tell you how many uh, ICU beds were available in your neighborhood. And uh, yesterday it was four and, uh, and now um, it's zero. Uh, so I, I really do uh, hope everyone is keeping themselves safe because it, it's, uh, it's going to be a difficult time in terms of uh, trying to get care if you need urgent care. Um, <clears throat> it's a, it's funny to be in a position of, of uh, I feel an obligation to talk about family relationships and encountering them, particularly because uh, I was raised in a in a. Uh, well, let me tell you how I was raised in terms of my religious experience. When I came home from fourth grade, I was supposed to fill out a form and there was a line in the form that said, what religion are you? And so I said to my mother, what religion are we? And she said, oh, put Protestant. <laughs> Which actually is the complete religious training I received as a child. So um, I, uh, it's a funny thing, um, both of my uh, grandmothers on my 
uh, on both sides um, were uh, Irish Catholic. They were both first generation famine Irish. One was Canadian, one was uh, American. And uh, they both became, uh, well, my father's mother became Episcopalian uh, and my uh, mother's uh, mother became Christian science um, over the years. Uh, my mother's mother was much more religious than my um, Episcopalian grandmother. I came from a family that was very uh, um, um, socially mobile and wanted to go up the ladder. So uh, if you can imagine, um, my father's mother uh, said to me that when she was a, a, a young woman and coming into marrying age, she lived in Cadillac, Michigan. Uh, do you know the Midwest at all? Cadillac, Michigan is up by Traverse City. So if you, you look at the palm, uh, uh, it's uh, up here. And um, there was a, so this is the late 1800s. And so uh, there was a doctor who came through town once every uh, couple of weeks who had the buggy route through central Michigan. He would go from town to town in his buggy and provide medical care. And she thought that if she could convince him to marry her, uh, he was 20 years older and a German immigrant, that uh, she could convince him to move to Chicago where she wanted to move. And so she convinced him to marry him and then he, they, they moved to Chicago and, and, uh, and had that sort of life of the Eastern, sort of the Connecticut life in, in Chicago, which was not quite like Connecticut, although it's a lovely place if you haven't been um, near Lake Michigan. My grandmother on my mother's side said uh, to me at one point, George, you will never understand how I was raised considering how you were raised. I grew up in one of those big upper middle class houses. She said, when I was 17, I uh, stood in the front yard of our log cabin, which was on the wheat plains of Alberta. Do you know Canada? Alberta is one over from uh, the West Coast, one of the places. She said, I had to stoop to get out of the house. And she was, you know, 410. Uh, so you can imagine how low the doorway was. And she said, I stood in the front yard, I turned 360 degrees. And all I could see in all directions were wheat fields. And the voice inside my head said, you got to get the hell out of here. And so <laughs> she said she spent a year convincing her mother to convince her father to send her to college and that they looked through magazines of the time for the school that looked like the biggest uh, play school for the children of the rich and decided uh, that she would go to Lake Forest, uh, which is north of Chicago, which is where she went. And um, as she was being put on the train, her mother said to her, now is not a good time to be an Irish Catholic. Better you should be a British Protestant. And as her father was putting her on the train, he said, if you're not engaged by the end of the year, you have to come back to the farm. Uh, so. <laughs> 
So we lived in this very sort of artificial place, uh, the family. Um, the, a real attention to looking good and looking in, in, at the level of society that they wanted to be without any underpinnings really under it. My, my grandmother on my mother's side married uh, somebody who was wealthy and then the depression happened and she said, we landed in the upper middle class. So uh, my mother had th uh, three sisters. Her brother was killed in the second world war. A lot of trauma around that, which was never healed or never really been talked about. My, uh, both of my grandfathers drank themselves to death in their early fifties, one at 52 and one at 53. Um, so um, outwardly, my family experience was one of, uh, of we're doing really well. And, and there was a lot of unresolved chaos in the family itself, uh, which ended up with me spending a large part of my life trying to make sense of it and correct the things that, that were derailing my capacity to, to uh, explore in ways that were that are meaningful to me. And so, but we each have our own family conditioning and we um, have um, some connection to it or not. I um, have been ejected my, from my family and actually the last time I had contact with any of them was in 1992. So it's been a while since then. So one of the trepidations I have about talking about going home to see your family at Christmas time is they kicked me out and I'm not allowed back. <laughs> so how do I relate to that? Uh, it was painful, but not as painful as staying in the pretense of the family life that we had. So there's that as well. Some of us may have had that experience of, of not finding a, a good fit in the family or not finding a family system that really uh, delighted in, in, in us. One of the things that we talk about quite a bit in, in doing the attachment work is that sense of delight that's really a requirement for secure functioning relationships. And I grew up in a family system where I was largely embarrassing to them. And so I wouldn't be greeted with this sense of delight and, and inclusion. I would be greeted with embarrassment, oh God, uh, um, here he is. Uh, I hope he doesn't do anything horrible. Um, and, and I have to say that uh, because of uh, the level of my uh, dissociative, um, early dissociative life, I, I often did things that were embarrassing. So some of it was um, actually based on what would happen. So do you get to go back to your family system? And if you do, um, and you have difficulty there, then part of this is going to be a process of being open to the experience of it and to not allow, not getting so discombobulated by uh, the experience of it that you become emotionally dysregulated and, and, uh, and then lose uh, the capacity to respond in a skillful way. Um, in some sense, the withdrawing from my family was the skillful action, even though it wasn't the one that I really wanted to have happen. I think that my desire was to be seen and to be uh, 
loved and to be appreciated and, and that wasn't really on the table there. Uh, so um, what I did of course was go out into the world and look for a, a family uh, of choice that I could then connect to who would do that for me since it's so vitally important to have that as a base that you can then explore from. But we do also have a real bias in the teaching around uh, seeing if you can maintain those relationships, if there's something, some ground there, and really trying to make them work in the way that they can work. Uh, it may not be possible to get all of your needs met there, but you might be able to get some of them met. We do, as children uh, uh, in this human life that we have, have a strong desire to be appreciated and, and cared for by the by our, our uh, parents or our caregivers, whoever they were, whatever combination that took. And to not get that as a pain that uh, if there's some piece of it that you can get is worth having. Um, so, and at the same time, um, not, not compromising your uh, necessary exploration so that you can find the meaningfulness that you need to have in order to feel uh, uh, enriched in life. Um, life is hard enough if you if you don't uh, explore in a way that provides that meaningfulness then it's hard to uh, really overcome the despair that often living can provide. Uh, particularly over, over here in our culture. I know that uh, this year it's, it's probably exacerbated because of the, the necessary social isolation that we're enduring as part of the effort to uh, contain the coronavirus. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not that socially active, but I value the social activities that I had prior to the, to the, lockdowns and to the limits that have been imposed. Um, and so I, I find that uh, it's easy to get off balance in that way, to get too socially isolated. Understand that social isolation in itself can be painful. I talked last week about retreat practice and how uh, the silence is often activating of the attachment mechanism and the inability to connect with other people, even in a superficial way, uh, can also aggravate the attachment system because uh, we're used to these small exchanges, even if they're very surface level, that are reassuring in terms of our worth and our value. And to be completely disconnected to that can cause the attachment mechanism to go off. And um, it goes through this cycle. First, there's a kind of, you know, we all look as cute as we can, so people will be drawn to us, and then that doesn't work. The, we're confused as to what we're doing wrong. And that that doesn't work. There's a kind of distress of a whimper. Usually adults have learned to suppress the whimper parts, but not always as <laughs> you may be aware. And then uh, a sort of cry out, uh, continuous cry, a tantrum mode. Some of us go into anaclyptic depression because of the, the nature of our childhood experiences, which we just shut down when you go on a retreat, of course, you uh, and you've gone to multiple retreats over a period of time, you learn how to manage that in such a way that it, it isn't so distressing and you can go for longer periods. But one of the things that I 
uh, uh, tell my students on retreats is to pay attention to that cycle of distress as it arises and see if you can understand the rhythm of it. Some people can go for a day and a half before they need to have that contact. Some people can go for two and a half days uh, before they need that kind of reassurance. Some people can go uh, for the whole retreat <laughs> and have no desire uh, to interact with anybody uh, and then leave the retreat and still have no desire to interact with anybody. So it's <laughs> really depends on your conditioning, which you want to really be able to examine and, and know. But if you are going to be interacting with people over the holidays, um, uh, there's a lot of conditioning around it. So at least uh, um, uh, that's what I'm hearing a lot with the, the students that I have. And so coming into this place of compassion for everybody and, and, uh, and uh, attempting to do your best at it. One of the things we talk about in, in the attachment work about exploration is always having a sense of trying to do your best in everything, really taking the, the skillful action in everything that you do. And then the, the freedom to express that unique sensibility that's just yours. Um, and then hopefully you're in a group of people that really appreciates that sensibility. So you have that sense of being delighted in when you express that. But if you're going back to a family group, uh, it's, it's useful to explore how that reaction is. What is your sense of your willingness to be in that uh, joyful, spontaneous expression of your unique sensibility um, is it are you free to do that or do you feel inhibited from doing that that's something to pay attention to and then how do people respond to that there's always a wish we have when we make these presentations uh, of how we would like people to respond to us and so often it's it's interesting to touch into the nature of that wish as we form the intention and take the action. And then when we take the action, see what the response is and, and compare it to your wish for what you, you had hoped would come from your expression. It's a way of, um, sometimes it's possible to correct the presentation in just a, a little bit of a way so that the communication that you had meant to make lands on the other person and they can understand actually what you're trying to say. And then also notice uh, your response to their response. This is this back and forth of how communication works. So we have the wish for what we want to communicate and then we formulate our intention and we take our action and then we see what the response of the other person was. And then we see what our response to that uh, response is. And then you begin to understand the the nature of communication because sometimes when you you have a wish to, to make a connection or to be understood in a certain way and you take an action and the other person completely misconstrues it it creates this uh, uh, pressure cooker of self arising uh, that, that we then need to defend because it's created this either the sense of, of being attacked or being unseen or being misunderstood and then that the identification with that arising of the self in that moment becomes so intense and then it can distort our next intention and action and then before you know it what started out as this wish to be seen and to be delighted in becomes this raging <laughs> argument 
<laughs> um, when I was in treatment years ago, so this would have been maybe like 86. Um, we did a family tree and we were supposed to mark who in the family had a drinking problem because I was in a, in a rehab for um, alcoholism. And uh, I did it, you know, dutifully as all good people with dismissing qualities have. <laughs> we just follow the instruction. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the counselor said that she'd never seen a family tree that had so many alcoholics in it. So I said, you've never been home to an Irish family then. Let me turn this off. Uh, to give you an example, we were, this was in my teen years at uh, how the family dinners went. Uh, we were, the, 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 teen, the teen cousins were all at one big table and my, the cousin uh, who was sitting next to me just did a face plant into the turkey dinner and my, my other cousin who was sitting just beyond said, I think we should move uh, the plate. Uh, she's gonna burn her face. And so I lifted up her head and he slid the plate up. And then I put the head back down and we continued dinner. And then at a certain point, she's just sat up, pulled the plate in and started to eat her dinner. And that was kind of the, the rhythm of the, of the family life. So, uh, <clears throat> One of the things that can happen when you come out of those systems is to try and normalize them in, in comparison to other, uh, other groups of people. If you come over to my house for dinner, that, that's never gonna happen <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, we also have the issue of a polarized politic as I think of it uh, now. Um, one of the things about this human condition is that we're these highly moral creatures and we evaluate the moral worth of other people. And uh, if we find that you are uh, failing morally the experience is called contempt that generates, it's a kind of anger, a kind of cold anger that comes up. Uh, and often it's accompanied by a, a sense of devaluing uh, the other person. And so in, in your family group, you may notice there's a, a range of uh, political views. My mother uh, said uh, uh, that she thought Nixon was a liberal. So you can sort of get the bent that we had she said, she used to say jokingly, I'm significantly to the right of Vitello the Hun. Uh, so, uh, and uh, <clears throat> I, I, uh, when I was in high school, I, I put on an impeach Nixon button on uh, like a good high school kid and she didn't speak to me for two months. <laughs> uh, she said the biggest regret was sending the, me to Interlaken, which was a, uh, a music uh, camp in, uh, in Michigan, because I encountered radicals who converted me into a, a, a 
thinking that equality is a good idea. <laughs> uh, but I do find myself having a, a hard time with uh, the, the, the extreme nature of the politics that we're in. Um, I sometimes liken it to be on opposite sides of a river. And so how do we relate to that? Do we simply uh, do a bypass and not engage in the political scene, the political discussion, if that's necessary? And sometimes that, that will work uh, without having to compromise particularly. Or do we uh, engage it and, and then create uh, disharmony? This is a really, in some sense, a discussion of speech or right speech because divisive speech is, is, is not uh, encouraged. False speech is not encouraged. Uh, gossip is not encouraged. <clears throat> Mainly so that we can stay in this place of equanimity and be engaged in the present moment and also then be open to the experience of the other person to be compassionate in our response to the other person how do you come into a place of compassion for, for someone who uh, you have contempt for? And so this is this, this part of metta where you, you really do find a way to back out of the anger that, that's caused by this and to, be, to find a place where you can be uh, engaged in the experience of it without that anger poisoning it. I am um, notice that it's very challenging because I can feel in myself the anger sort of welling up in response to some of the ideas that I, I hear and, and uh, I despair and um, uh, trying to uh, uh, explain or reason when, when uh, the, my encounters of them are so rigid in terms of uh, their thinking, but I'm, I'm informed by uh, uh, them uh, as I debate them. I'm uh, using um, pronouns because I'm, I'm um, protecting identity. That actually I'm the one who's rigid and unaccepting of views. Uh, so it's So what I, when I think of, uh, of some of them, I, the main feeling I have is love uh, and uh, uh, wanting them to do well and be happy and, uh, and succeed at the things that have meaning to them so that they can feel that sense of meaningfulness. But I don't go out to dinner with them anymore. I guess that's the way I handle it. I'm very happy if they would come across the river and we could engage in dialogue, but I can't go over there and catch them. Um, so, How will you sit at the table with the people that you sit at the table with when you didn't get to handpick them? Um, I do always encourage when I talk about how to set up the relationships in your life that you, you you do it really in the Dunbar structure where you have the A's and B's, which are people that you've carefully picked that have demonstrated that they're trustworthy, that have demonstrated that they love you and that they want the best for you and that they delight in you so that when you're in that group of people, 
you can be completely free to express that authenticity that you have, that unique sensibility, and that they revel in the expressions of that, and then and then they share their own with the same freedom, and and you revel in in them sharing that experience. But if you don't have that in somebody, that you you then are protective of yourself or guarded of yourself, which I think is actually a useful way to be in the world. So that you use your time, energy, and resources in a way that, that provides for you the social support that you need so that you can explore well, and that that uh, social support leaves enough energy so that you can explore, that you have the time, energy, and resources to pursue the things that will provide meaningfulness in your life because relationships alone typically don't have enough in them to be able to do that. If you rely solely on relationships to provide meaning in your life, you're often going to be in a state of dissatisfaction and also in a state of picking at your partner because they're not providing enough meaning for you, uh, not understanding really that you can't get that kind of meaning from uh, a relationship. You have to get it from your own uh, exploration, the pursuit of things that you find meaningful. And you also can't get them from pursuing things that uh, other people find meaningful. You have to really find within yourself what it is that uh, resonates with you and uh, pursue that. Uh, does put us in that uh, conundrum of some things have high social value and high remunerative value and some things don't. What happens if the things that you find really meaningful are not well regarded or rewarded in our, in our culture? Um, how can you organize it in such a way that you can pursue what has meaning to you uh, and maybe not necessarily get the kind of support or encouragement to do it? I always like to say teaching meditation is something that's very meaningful to me, but it's it's not highly regarded. <laughs> there are no meditation scholarships, but there are football scholarships and baseball scholarships and swimming scholarships, and academic scholarships. What I find really meaningful then is being in relationship to other people and, and supporting them and being able to love them and to encourage them and to delight in them and, uh, and then to have them go off and discover wild things about the world and then come back and tell them to me. And uh, so I don't have to go do that. I can go do something else uh, that has a meaning to me. So it's a kind of constant attending to uh, being alive in the world and, and who you surround yourself with. Some people telling some things to, some people telling everything to. And if you go home to a family system where uh, all of those things aren't in place, then you should be telling them some things, but not everything. And coming into a place where that actually, uh, your understanding is that that's a good thing. That's actually a, a, a skillful way of being in relationship to them. And then uh, you'll bump up against this wish uh, for what you wanted that maybe you didn't get. Uh, and 
uh, pay attention to that uh, longing that might arise when you want to get from them still the things that you didn't get from your child that you can't get from them because you're not a child anymore. At least looking as I look at the screen, nobody here is a child anymore, <laughs> at least age-wise. <laughs> And that the time to have gotten those things is over. And one of the things about this is, is appropriately grieving that. They may not have been able to, to, to meet you uh, completely in the way that you needed them to meet you. Um, and the time for them to do that is over. And so we grieve the loss of it. It's, uh, and then come in fully to the present moment and look in the present moment for what we can get now that will will satisfy not then, but satisfy now. Uh, and we can let those things wash away into the past as something that was unfulfilling at that time, rather than con constantly trying to get that to happen now, which causes us to give up what we could get now in the hopes of getting something that we can't, we can't get. And then we have this continuous line of the present moment that was unsatisfying because we didn't attend to actually what's what's here now and what we can do now in this moment. I had a sadistic father, so he he was intentionally harmful, which is very different, I think, than most caregivers. My mother was not that; she was uh, helpless and, and unconscious a lot of the time, and so. The, a lot of the harm that she did, uh, she caused was uh, because she didn't uh, really attend to her own needs and her own uh, desires and and uh, that that uh, sense of dissatisfaction and sadness often overwhelmed her. She never, for instance, addressed her drug and alcohol addiction, which caused real havoc in, in the household I grew up in. Neither did my dad, but he was more controlled, so it didn't seem so chaotic and uh, strange. Um, one of the things that happens um, when the self arises, of course, is that the working model of the self activates. When the work, the, the the way that human memory works or associations like that is these gists play. And part of that working model is the, the memory, part of it is the experience of the present moment and how we're interpreting it. And part of it is this uh, collection of mind states that we're, we're able to view the experience of ourself uh, through. And uh, if we grow up uh, in environments where there's a lot of negative mind states directed toward us or we internalize these negative states, then the collection of this, the experience of self as it arises activates these negative mind states, which we then associate with ourselves. But uh, you know, we're always uh, uh, recoiling from pain and pushing into pleasure and, and liking excitement and not being bored by a, an environment that isn't rich in the things we like, we all carry with, with us a, a hierarchy of uh, preferred experiences. And 
when we walk into an environment and if it's rich with those experiences, we think it's really interesting. And if, if it's a desert and there's not much there that is on our list, we think that there's something wrong with the environment when actually it's just our list of things that uh, have meaning to us. <clears throat> but when you have a lot of negative mind states that are associated with the activation of, or the activity of self, every time the activities of self arises, there's an aversion to the experience of those negative mind states. And we, uh, uh, in uh, colloquial terms, call that self-hatred. So what arises is this sense of uh, distressing mind states that we've associated with the experience of self. And one of the things about going home, of course, is that uh, the, the place where all those negative mind states were installed, you've just walked in the door into the lion's den where the lion roars and all of a sudden the sense of self arises with all of those negative mind states. So you can have these sort of blistering experiences of dislike for yourself and so we want to move toward holding our own experience with this tenderness of the metta mind and to and, and do our practices so that we can really infuse into that working model of self these very positive mind states one of the reasons we do the ideal parent figure is to really embed in the experience of ourselves this sense of positivity there these two systems are separate of course the the negative system and the positive system. And, and you have to mitigate and minimize the negative experience, but you also have to intentionally build a robust capacity for positive experience so that when that sense of self arises, actually it's pleasant and you enjoy the experience of the sense of self. And if you can embed a strong mindset of love, then when the sense of self arises, uh, actually the experience is one of self-love if you uh, can embed a delight in the working model of self, then when the sense of self arises, there's a sense of delight that you're in the experience of self and not the usual uh, horror show. Um, so I like to say, If when the sense of self arises, you, you are not imme immediately compassionate and delighted and filled with love, then at least half of the practice should be metta until you, you, you really pump it up and, and get there so that that's, that's the experience. It's much easier to, to engage in uh, exploration. It's much easier to engage in connecting to other people. It's much easier to engage in the expression of that unique sensibility that just you have if uh, that delights you. If you find, of course, that that critical voice, those critical voices, they're not good enough, so the, there's something wrong, all of those other things that, that you might have been conditioned into arises, then it becomes very inhibiting. And if you're inhibited in doing that, of course, you're not making the authentic expression, so you can't be uh, delighted in by other people in the expression of it. And, and that's one of the things that, that, that leads to that sense of despair and the, the unwillingness to actually go out and explore. So if you do uh, get to go home to your family system, you can watch all of those things happening in front of you and, and, and mindfully and, and uh, make a note of what you're, you're gonna need to practice when you get home. <laughs>
<laughs> and if you're uh, fortunate enough to have a family that, that revels in you and thinks you're awesome, then you can go and see that and, and enjoy that quality uh, of experience and really take in how precious that is and how uh, fortunate you are to have had that experience since it's it's a, a minority of us that, that have that. And if you get to, to circle around with your, your family of choice and be with them, and you have all of those positive experiences, then you've done a really good job of assembling that, that group. And if you haven't, then you, you need to start tweaking it, tweaking membership in it, because really what we want is to walk into a room and have the people that delight us light up when they see us, not because we've done anything, just because they can see us, right? Um, if you know that uh, somebody you delight in is going to be with you and in 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you're gonna be completely emotionally regulated and, and just uh, um, really sort of happy and uh, uh, to be with them then when you see them, you light up with delight naturally because you're gonna feel good in a few minutes. And if they're reliable and being able to regulate you, then um, why not light up in delight with them? And then pay attention to who does that for you so that you can really value them and, and put resources into maintaining those relationships so you get to see them more often until they're, they're, they're the only kind of person that you've surrounded yourself with. All right. That is all I'm gonna say about going home. <laughs> and maybe what we should do is some metta, what do you think? Uh, as a uh, precursor to uh, that, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll teach it as a uh, metaphor, uh, an easy person, and then we'll switch to metaphor self, if you like. So go, go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Everybody happy? Wake up. <laughs> Good. So uh, this class will not meet for then three weeks. Uh, um, uh, next week is Christmas and then the week after the Meta Group Retreat is happening and the week after that, I'm going to try and lie still and do nothing for a week. Um, so then we'll begin again in January see what the date for that is. Oh, George, when are you going to do the next um, one you did this weekend? Uh, when are you going to do that again? The one uh, with uh, addiction and stuff. The next addiction retreat. All right, I'll, I'll answer that. So this class is returning on January 14th. And then the next addiction class is um, 
Uh, it's Saturday, April 24th, and Sunday, April 25th. You'll have, um, we'll of course do our requisite 87 emails about it before we do it. <laughs> how, how did it go the past weekend? How, how, how was it? Uh, 77 people came to it, which is quite remarkable. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. and so they quite, and I think that they quite liked it. Uh, it was awesome. What? It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, testimonial. Uh, you probably did the reparenting from Dan, Dan Brown's reparenting. Um, I don't uh, parent figure. Did we do that, Stas? I can't remember. Nope. <laughs> Only promise, never delivered. <laughs> uh, one of the things about uh, a largely not heavily meditating crowd is that they like to talk. <laughs> well, given a choice between talking and practice, they invariably talk. talk. So. But I, I, I quite liked it. It's a huge data dump if you're not uh, used to it, attachment conversations. And so um, I'll, I'll take that in mind, Stas, and, 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 and make sure that we get the, uh, the ideal parent figure at the beginning of the Sunday morning so it doesn't get swept away. There was absolutely no meditation on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> George, I have a question uh, sure. about the metta practice. Do you think it's important to try to generate a strong sense of self while doing metta practice? Um, I don't think so necessarily because really you're just focusing more and more intently on the mindset itself and everything, including the sense of self, drifts into the background. So eventually you're just the mind state itself without really much of the self experience. So that would be better. Yeah, that's my experience too. I guess the reason I'm asking, it's like, it, it, I feel like that working model and that skill is most significant when there is a strong sense of self. So just well, kind of to put those. Yeah, you definitely want to, each time you make the intention, activate the sense of self, but as you get more and more concentrated, it's it's going everything is drifting. Even the phrases are lost in the background when you get really concentrated. So the first jhana is those five, and then the, the, the second jhana is <clears throat> this is the debate, of course, between the Vasudhimaga and the canon. But uh, uh, going with the Vasudhimaga, uh, uh, the Piti, the Sukha, and the Akagata are the second. Um, uh, metta jhana and then the third one is just the bliss and one pointedness and when you're there really there isn't much else besides the, the blissfulness of it but it's very it can be very intense um as i was saying or i say frequently the the seda calls it meta bombs when you're just walking along and all of a sudden you're totally blissed out uh, and so that that actually that experience of bliss is much more intense than anything I was ever able to generate by thinking a narrative to generate the positive feeling. So, and then if you can carry that, the 
the first stages of it, of course, are inward directed and that inward focus. And, and that's still activating the, the sense of self because the auditory, visual, and the feeling state in the body is, is that sense of self. But then when you're doing metta for all sentient beings, you're outwardly directed. And then you're looking through the, the mind state of loving kindness and seeing how it affects the creation of conceptual reality. Uh, and then understanding that, and then you can just go right into the insights of understanding the nature of uh, how conceptual reality is made and how it can be distorted and how you can distort it in a skillful way or an unskillful way. So, good enough? <laughs> are, you, are you going to Palm Springs, uh, George? I'm not. Oh. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going anywhere really because uh, the, the situation in the world is too dire. Um, so I'm gonna stay here. Turns out I live in a great place and I have tons to do. <laughs> so it's just gonna be an exercise in not doing any of it. <laughs> do, do, you walk, do you walk around in your neighborhood there by what Beverly and um, Rampart area? Do you walk um, around or? Uh, sometimes, but not often. Mm -hmm. um, I've added the COVID-10, hoping it doesn't turn into the COVID-20. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Linnea? <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing that, that, you, uh, that George did uh, at, against the stream is you always brought cookies from Trader Joe's. It was always something to look forward to, uh, you know, during your class. That was a generous thing that you would do, George. Is, Bring those cookies from Trader Joe's. So, thanks, thanks for that for doing that. Yeah. Okay. Good. George, th thanks for sharing the Alberta connection. It's uh, one Alberta boy to another. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, my, you know, and I know my mom uh, had the same experience as your mom. Uh. Yeah, looking out <laughs> the the. You know, looking out the window and saying, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and I, I think she turned out a lot like your mom, unfortunately. Oh, dear. <laughs> but uh, very kind of you to share. Thank you. Linnea. Um, I was going to ask a question about mind states. Um, I feel like when I'm doing like seeing, noting, or noting practice, um, that can be very rapid in terms of a lot of information coming, but so our mind states, um, would they be a lot more stable? Like you could be in just your, I don't know, do you have like a baseline mind state that could you have for a long time and then kind of switching them? Like they don't, your mind states don't change the way that, I don't know, other things we observe in meditation change. I wouldn't necessarily think that. Okay. Um, if you don't have agency and understanding mind states and, and having some control over what mind state is present at a given moment, then they're as changeable as everything else. Something happens, uh, it makes you angry, and then there's a lingering mind state of anger that then distorts everything toward anger or uh, happiness or whatever the mind state is that arises. Uh, the Buddha, of course, uh, talked about it as a, an equanimous mind or a craving mind or a, an aversive mind or a sloth and torpor mind or restless and agitation mind or a doubting mind. 
I like to add the uh, attachment mind. So is it a secure mind? Is it a preoccupied mind? Is it a dismissing mind? Is it a disorganized mind? Um, but any of the any of the experiences that linger can cause that. You know, and, and there's a kind of background uh, biochemical aspect of it too, because if you're angry for a long period of time, of course you've become angry because you've dumped all these chemicals into the system. And so there's a background of the chemicals that builds up so that it, even a small irritant can cause an outside reaction because the base chemicals are there to create a bigger reaction. And then the, the, uh, the old stuff and the new stuff conflating if you don't have uh, clarity there. But the, um, the, the loving kindness mind is this particular and subtle mind state that maybe working with some of the bigger ones uh, is easier to see them. I, di I didn't learn mind states from loving kindness. I learned it from anger and sadness. Um, the angry mind and all of a sudden everything is making me angry, even though everything is neutral. Or the sadness mind, everything seems just bleak, even though it isn't. And when the mindset is there, it isn't. So that was how I learned it. And then once I had a sense of what, oh, that's what a mind state is, then I could turn my attention to the, the subtler aspects of mind and begin to notice them. Um, one of the questions that you might use to, to help yourself with this is, how do I know this is what's going on? How do I know that? Right? How do I know? Is this just it? Is it just, is my mind still? And this is how I'm experiencing things or is there some shift or some bias in there, some distortion? And if you ask that question over and over again in a lot of different situations, that it, it will become clearer and clearer. Good enough? You're looking at me like, I don't want to do that. No. <laughs> All the stuff in the beginning, I was like, yeah. And then that last part was like, nah. <laughs> yeah. Because I just feel like, you know, reality is so subjective. So. And yeah, totally. Well, that's conceptual reality. You, you make it up and then project it out there as if it's there. Uh, and I think so my problem is I forget other people's reality is also subjective. Like, right. Yes. Good. Okay, thank you, that was helpful. Yeah, Steven. Um, yes, uh, tonight you had mentioned um, that mind state and view are interchangeable terms for each other. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, view. Okay. Because um, I, I just, that kind of resonated with me strangely tonight more than any time in the past okay because when i think of a mind state i think of a mind state as having a feeling but i've learned that a mind state doesn't have feeling attached to it but view puts it the the word view makes so much more sense to me so um i just wanted to have you speak to that a little bit um, and i and i really love hearing your personal story i think um, there's such a sense of generosity that you have when you share um, about your family and your history. And I really love that. So thank you. Thank you. 
it's uh, it's too big a question for me to answer now because we're out of time. So I'm not going to, but I will answer it uh, in three weeks. <laughs> uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm very happy to have uh, sat with you this year and look forward to sitting with you next year. Um, the only thing left on the calendar for this year is the uh, Tuesday night class next week and then the retreat. So the retreat is on the 28th. There's still a few places left in it if you want to sign up for it. We do have scholarships available for it too if you want to. Um, you have to call the office for the scholarship. The, if you just go to the website, it's just uh, what we're asking for the retreat. Um, we'll begin again the week of January 11th. Uh, we're going to be starting a series of level one classes at the end of January. Um, so there'll be uh, four uh, day longs on Saturdays, uh, two weeks apart, nine to four. Um, and then in the spring, we'll start another level two. We had such a good turnout from the addiction class that uh, we, we're making the offer that if we, we have 12 people that are interested in doing a, a six month intensive on the addiction stuff that we'll, we'll do that class. I'll let you know how that goes. Um, or if you're interested, let us know. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the poly word for generosity. So I offer the teachings freely, and, and, but I do hope that you'll support myself and also the work that Metagroup is doing through donation. You can go to the website and find a link for making a donation, or if you've got an email about the class, there should be a link in the, in, in the email as well. Any amount is helpful to us. Uh, but if you, you're not resourced, then please continue to come. We're happy as a community to support your practice. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Bye now.